We are recording this. Let me get these alerts off. We are good to go. Good afternoon, everyone. We are sailing into Saturday. You know, we only do Saturday podcasts for some favorite people. So we're super excited about today. But good afternoon, everyone. This is Carol. So AKA Nani was live with two sisters. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. This is Janice, AKA Wellness Diva 5.0 live from Melillo Circle. It is freezing cold in my office and it's almost 90 degrees outside. Go figure. So let's hop on into Sailing Saturday. We are so excited to welcome back to today's podcast, the famous TikTok doctor on um, amazing information about uh so many different things when you go under welcome back dr anthony cave did i pronounce that correctly cave yeah that was good and we are so excited to have you back um (laughs) excuse me when we had you back on in march um i just wanted to let everyone know as i have quite frequently my son is doing very very well and blessed and grateful and we know that um you know sometimes with different medical things that pop up um and i'm obviously you can certainly attest to this you know when you're in the possibility of having to go under let's just start there like what are some of the things and i know we discuss a lot of this but there's just so much to cover. What are some suggestions or just kind of give us an update on where you are in um, what you're doing? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you again for having me. As you know, a big fan of your show and so thrilled to be back this Saturday. And for anesthesia, we call this probably the most mysterious branch of medicine for a reason, because patients certainly don't know what to expect unless they've had anesthesia before, in which case they still don't really know what to expect because as I think we probably discussed last time, either before the patient enters the operating room or when they're in the operating room, we give them medications that literally wipe their memories. So you actually don't know what happens to your body, except for some rare cases. What I personally do to help make this go smoother for patients, and we discussed this last time as well, is that I call patients the night before their surgery so that we can go through the technical parts of the anesthesia, what it's like falling asleep, if there's going to be a breathing tube placed, the chance of sore throat hoarseness. I actually showed you guys some of the breathing tubes last time. And it's important to know because if you're prepared for maybe having that sore throat, we can talk about tips that are often natural to help minimize or get that sore throat out of the way faster. So It might sound kind of scary, but it is important as part of the consent process to go through the technical things. By getting that out of the way the night before, on the day of surgery, when anxiety is at its peak and everyone's rushing and things are moving fast, I get to not have to focus on the consent part of the technical stuff. We actually get to talk about the experience of what's going to happen. You know, when you're having surgery, like it could be this giant operation in your belly, in your chest on your heart, lungs, wherever. But what the patient sees at the end of the day or what they're gonna remember is of course the outcome. Did the surgery work or not? But also like they see the scar. It's like, what did that scar look like? That's part of the experience that they take away. It doesn't matter all the stuff that we do, that's our job. Ultimately what the patient takes away is the experience. And that's what I want patients to have optimally experienced or optimally to take away from this because it can often be healing. Like we said, to the mind as much as the body. But it's hard to do if you're rushing and just, you know, hastily saying hi to your anesthesiologist and signing the form and being shoved into the operating room. That's not a pleasant experience when you're maybe the most frightened or anxious that you'll ever be in your life. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. And we, we t- chatted the other evening and yesterday. Um, well, Carol Sue, why don't you take it away? Phil Doctor. No, I'm actually I'm, I'm seeing a sports uh, uh, orthopedic sports specialist uh, on Wednesday and uh, major issues with my shoulder, my hip and my knee, all left side. So, you know, I've had, I avoided surgery probably, I think it was about four years ago through therapy, physical therapy on my shoulder. 
it's rare and it's ugly head again. So I'm, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a little nervous that there's probably a tear. Uh, the same thing with my hip. I have all the classic signs because my sister had the surgery already and everything that she described. And then of course I'm doing my, you know, Google search, web, web MD search. And I have all those classic signs. And then of course there's my knee. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, having issues with my knee. So Obviously, we, I don't know anything, you know, I'm sure the first thing they're going to want to do is an MRI, uh, but I'm already got questions going into it just from the knowledge that you really, because if it goes that route of surgery, you know, I'm already walking in there, I already have my list, and my first thing is, you know, I'm not a good patient, so you better note that on your chart, and I tell that to any doctor, because I just, I, when it comes to shots, when it comes to, you know, the anxiety that you speak of, you know, I'm, I'm that person. And when you had really, really put it into perspective, which I don't think most patients even think about, but those of us that really struggle with that kind of an anxiety issue, you know, that really is the step before death. And when you, you know, and I'm not sure exactly how you worded it, you probably worded it a little bit more pleasant than I am, but ultimately that's, you know, your, your body's in that state. And then, you know, the next step would be, you know, six feet under basically. <laughs> so of course I've got that wrapping in my head. So I've got quite a few questions and one of them if it is to lead to surgery is i want to i want to meet the anesthesiologist i thought what you brought which i don't think like you know as we chatted that most people just don't think about it. the first time you have the interaction with the anesthesiologist is really you know asking you some formative questions you know on your health uh you know introducing themselves and then here sign off and you know, you, you're wheeled in and typically, at least in my case, they're usually giving me a sedative before I can even get to that point because I'm already, you know, wound up. And, you know, you, you, you know, may have a few other words, like, you know, not necessarily like you say, counting backwards or whatever, but, you know, here we are. We're about to put you under. Yay. So I'm actually, if it goes to that route where I will need surgery, you've really opened up my mind and my heart and my ability to ask, you know, certain questions of an anesthesiologist that I would never have even thought about. You really kind of put that connection together that you're not just that, that you want to really make sure that the patient's comfortable. And I think that is something that I think all doctors on a whole, uh, depending on obviously the specialty, but you know, I think it's just a good practice. Makes so much sense. Well, it makes so much sense. And unfortunately, when we're talking with insurers, sometimes common sense doesn't always follow through. But in this case, not only is the common sense absolutely there, but post-operative complications, surgical complications, blood clots, infections can all be less. Not to mention the chance of developing chronic pain from the acute surgical pain, nausea. I mean, the list goes on and on of things that even payers one day or you know, even today should care about. So it's this kind of elegant mix of it's a win-win situation for everybody. The surgeon wants it, the anesthesiologist obviously wants it, the patients want it, nobody loses. It's just this example of how a system has been unfortunately built around a model that isn't right for anyone involved. You know, it's not the patients or the doctors that benefit with the status quo. Yeah, I mean, it, it just really, and, and from the healing part, again, I, I, it's a piece that most people generally, you know, wouldn't necessarily think about, but, it, you know, it kind of goes back into that mode. And even when you're going to sleep, like, you know, the whole, the, the old cliche saying, which there's a lot of truth to it, is don't go to bed, don't don't ever go to bed bed you know angry, you, you know always go you know in a, in a more pleasant state, um, you know really you know stay off of your devices before you go to sleep. So you know we know that there's things that we can be doing to really have a, even a better restful night's sleep. So it would go it would so make sense at that point that would be the same scenario with going into a surgery, especially where you are being put under to go in there with a clear head, you know, a peaceful state, uh, kind of letting, you know, 
things around you just be be more comfortable and you know I, i'm gonna ask them to see if they can play some music <laughs> oh yeah I, I gotta share a story with you guys because this just happened in the last week and i cannot stop thinking about it and i thought that i got to bring it up and it's so related to what you just said this just blew my mind because everything you said is true about how at peace you are before you fall asleep, whether it be you know your natural night's sleep or going to sleep under anesthesia. One thing that is additional to the anesthesia is that having trust and who's caring for you is also incredibly important, not only for reducing the chance of trauma, PTSD, et cetera, that might form after anesthesia, which is more common than we know. Um, you know, when you're sleeping at night regularly, you don't have to trust anyone how to sleep because you're just sleeping on your own, a little bit different for anesthesia. But that trust can be so powerful. And this patient story just uh, really is demonstrative. So the night before, this was an elderly lady over 70 years old. And as we're talking about the technical stuff about anesthesia the night before, uh, she had a very, very, very unusual condition. I had never heard of this before. And I was a little bit validated and uh, being told that she's seen all the specialists in the Bay Area, all the big name academic centers here, you know, Stanford, UCSF, et cetera. None of those doctors had, all, had, had uh, figured it out either. So I was like, all right, it sounds just so unusual. No one else has figured it out. Usually this is a sign of it being one of the, uh, what we call multivariable, multifactorial like conditions. It was a limb that was very rigid. So like imagine your, imagine one arm being fine, but the other arm just being stiff. Very unusual in the absence of any like spinal cord disease or maybe something like multiple sclerosis to just have one random limb not move. And unfortunately this can have implications under anesthesia. It can actually be very dangerous depending on what the cause of the rigidity is. So I had to ask, you know, I had to go into this deep dive. Well, it turns out that this all started maybe a decade ago after the loss of the patients, uh, one of their children, in this terrible, horrific accident that um, really heart-wrenching. And suffice to say that all these symptoms started after a major traumatic event in the patient. Uh, I mean, I'm sitting here, it's not really my intention to go into something this deep, but obviously, like I said, for the safety of the anesthesia, we got to get to the root cause. I need to at least eliminate some of the um, conditions that might be lethal under anesthesia that might cause this limb rigidity. So fortunately, it was not concerning for the anesthesia. So we proceeded, you know, the next morning when I saw her before surgery, we reviewed everything. Um, a lot of anxiety, a lot of trauma held on in medical settings from the experience that this patient had to go through with the loss of their child. Mm -hmm. um, we go under anesthesia, surgery goes fine. It was actually pretty minor surgery, not even like, you know, it was like an open heart surgery, minor surgery. The first thing the patient said when they woke up, first of all, was thank you, which is rare, but uh, indicative of somebody who, <laughs> indicative of the preoperative state when they wake up. But when we were rolling into the recovery room, you know, the patient is still not remembering things. So, you know, when patients wake up after anesthesia for the first couple of minutes, maybe first half an hour, they might be having conversations, but they won't remember that because the parts of the brain that consolidate memories are not fully functional. The first thing they said when they rolled into the recovery room, maybe like three minutes after they woke up, doc, I think I have conversion disorder. My jaw dropped. Are you familiar with conversion disorder? No. Conversion disorder. And I, this is why I was shocked at why this patient even knew what the word was, is one of the most like, unknown and mind-boggling diagnoses in medicine where patients may have some sort of severe physical ailment, usually in the form of like their arm won't move, like literally a paralyzed arm with no reason to explain it. We have all these tests we do in medicine to rule out somebody, quote, faking it because these just seem so far-fetched. Like why would somebody wake up one morning unable to move their arm or their leg. We have all sorts of tests to like trick patients into trying to move their arm and I won't go through them, but yeah. it's you know, neurologists and psychiatrists are well-versed in these because a lot of patients, unfortunately, might try to fake it for, um, you know, malingering for insurance needs or whatever. You know, you weed those patients out with these tests. 
And you have a whole bunch and it's like, what are these conditions? Conversion disorder specifically relates to a psychogenic, something related to the mind. Not, I'm not saying it's all in your, it's all in your brain, but it's right. not in the sense that these patients are crazy by any means, but it is because something has happened in the brain where they literally cannot control some of the most fundamental parts of their body, like moving a leg to walk, <laughs> moving an arm to write a letter or something. Anyways, uh, not something that lay people talk about. And this patient, so coming back to the patient, <laughs> they're still waking up from the anesthesia and they say, doc, I think I have conversion disorder. First of all, patients hate the diagnosis of conversion disorder because there's a stigma in the medical community today that, you know, once again, it's all in your head. You don't have anything wrong with you, which is clearly not true, but unfortunately gets interpreted that way by patients. Right. So patients, patients never want to say this and they don't want to hear it. So first of all, the patient who is telling me this, I called the patient two days later to follow up on this because I just couldn't get it out of my mind. They had no memory of telling me this at all. Wow. No memory whatsoever. Yeah. Turns out that not a single doctor has even believed her when she shared this with them. And they just keep doing injection after injection after injection and things that are all Band-Aid temporary solutions, which are nothing more than symptom relievers. Right. And it was just, I mean, it was an eye-opening conversation for her to have somebody, and I'm not building myself up here. Please don't get me wrong. This is not, the intention is not about me interacting with her. The point is what happened to this patient who simply trusted a doctor with their life, had a peaceful sleep, like you said, going to sleep peacefully, going to sleep peacefully with trust in your doctor. Right. How did that let this patient open up in ways that they've never been able to do before? She wasn't even remembering what was it? This was just on her subconscious that came up and uh, absolutely mind-blowing. Well, Unfortunately, you know, no one's listening to Right. And I, I think, too, when we, we, you know, frequently talk about the mind and there's so much to the mind that, you know, that it's capable of that we don't even really connect the dots to, in all honesty, um, you know, that is a testimony. Uh, so, you know, d don't sell, set yourself short on that. that. That is a testimony to, you know, obviously you put her in such a state of ease that really uh, melted down into her subconscious enough to for her to just come out and say what she had to say in such a way that, you know, no, maybe she didn't remember, but something before she was under, you connected with or she in her subconscious, you did, and she did. Uh, I think that's, you should applaud yourself. That's amazing. I, I think the amazing thing is that now she's empowered to go to all of her, yeah. you know, she's got a whole team of specialists now yes. and she will tell every single one of them I want to see, you know, the doctor who's going to help address this being potentially conversion disorder and not just doing Botox. So what we do for rigidity, this patient had trouble moving their limb. They just inject Botox every three months, which as you know, helps relax muscles, doesn't do anything beyond that, instead of right. addressing the root cause of why is this going on after such a traumatic event? It's, it was painful to relive. And I don't so, want to obviously put patients in pain, but when this patient yeah. has not shared this story with anyone else before, and you set them, you, you, we prime patients, we can prime them before the state of anesthesia when their inhibitions go down and they can actually get a chance to reflect on themselves. And anyway, give the diagnosis. I believe the diagnosis in this particular patient likely stems from that. And they just set it themselves. They blurted it without even being fully awake. How powerful is that? How powerful? Absolutely. Now, what would you, and I know I'm gonna let Jan interject as well, but you know, what would you like recommend for, Patients to, you know, again, to me, it, it goes back to self-care. And I think Jan will agree, agree with me on that. It goes back to self-care, you know, really addressing, like for me, like I, um, I do it in a very comedic way. Um, they think I'm like joking and, and like I'm a comedian. And I'm like, I, I'm not joking. I, I would be noting my chart right now. And I give them examples of things that I've gone through. And a quick one, and the, you know, to really enlighten, you know, whatever surgeon or doctor I'm dealing with. Um, when I avoided surgery, they did give me a shot of cortisone. I'm not a shot person at all. Like I really, that's one of my, the worst things for me. And, uh, you know, it was such a shot that they, you know, was, was manipulating and really pushing it and doing what he had to do or whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so done. And I'm like, 
are you gonna like cast it? Are you gonna give me a slate? And he's like, are you out of your mind? And I said, no, I'm dead serious. I, I gotta drive. And he goes, I thought you were joking. And he really thought I was joking. I said, oh no, I'm dead serious. You need to sling me. You gotta put a sling. He goes, are you kidding? And he just couldn't believe it. So he brought the nurse. He goes, is she like, is she for real? And I'm like, oh, I'm dead serious. I cannot drive. I need a sling. He goes, from a shot of cortisone? I go, hey, everyone's got their, you know. And so I kind of, you know, was joking with him at that point. I go, no, I'm, I'm serious. And so he finally did give me the sling and he put it on for me. And I was in that for like three days because that's how much pain. Um, but when I went to another, uh, uh, she was a, uh, a PA and she said, no, no. She said, there are people that have, you know, nervousness so she said i'm going to give you a shot and i was due for some sort of shot and i'm like oh I, I can't i just can't do it she's no 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 and she said just relax a minute so she did she got me to kind of relax and then she's i'm gonna have you bend over like an elephant i'm like what she's yeah, literally but bend to your side and just hang your arm down there i go oh, this is fun okay so i'm like hanging there and so she's talking to me and before i know it she already did the shot but because I wasn't so tense, the muscle wasn't so tense. And I go, that is, the, you know, because I, I mean, I'll go as far as asking, like, what's the gauge of the needle? Like, I have to know. So I, I, I really think what, so for someone like me, which is not the norm, or maybe more than the norm that people realize, I embrace it. And that's why I tell the doctor, what would you tell someone like me? You know, for preparation, like not just that morning, like the, the day before, like, you know, my thing is like I stay off of all devices, listen to music, maybe do some journaling. What would you recommend for the crazy patient like me? <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you so much for sharing. That, that's it's beautiful and it's by no means crazy. And if you think that you're in the minority for a second, I guarantee you, you are not, not even by one shot in the minority. <laughs> um, you know, we're very blessed to see all walks of life and, you know, uh, yeah, holy moly, definitely not in a minority. Uh, number one tip, which I hope everyone can appreciate, is that uh, what you experience with a shot um, in the moment of any type of shot, which before surgery, you need to get an IV, except for the most minor surgeries, we have to place an IV so we can give you your medications. Mm -hmm. um, this is most often like the most stressful part for patients because they got to be fully awake for it. It's very rare that we give any sedation before the IV goes in the hand or the, you know, the elbow area here or where. So tip number one, which works like a charm, we'll talk about why, is that I always ask my, well, first of all, I use a 30 gauge needle. So always ask for the babyest needle for, with, with lidocaine. I don't know why, uh, I'm not bashing any providers out there, but some people just say, oh, they need to get a poke anyways. Might as well just put the IV needle in and that's their one poke instead of getting one poke for the lidocaine and one poke for the uh, IV needle. The difference is that a 30 gauge needle, as you know, is like the babyest, babyest needle out there. We do it in kids all the time because it, you know. So right. always ask for a, a lidocaine needle if it concerns you. Some patients legitimately don't care. So like, you don't have to do it, but ask for that. Right Number that two. <laughs> I'm not right now. <laughs> Go ahead. Ask for the <laughs> And number two, what I do to distract patients is I ask them to cough as I'm placing that 30 gauge needle to numb the skin over the vein. What does coughing do? Coughing forces you to allocate your attention to something that's kind of voluntary, kind of involuntary. You have to, you have to engage all these muscles in your throat to cough. You, you actually have to focus for a split second. I know with COVID right now, everyone's like, what, you want me to cough? And it's like, yeah, just for a second, just cough on three. And when they're engaged in that cough and you see, you know, your eyes, like you get all scrunchy, you're focusing on, <coughs> boom, I put that little bit of lidocaine in there. So what does this mean for the patient? When, whenever I'm a patient getting like, you know, whatever a shot in my arm, I say, hey, let me know when you're giving me a countdown to three. I like to cough. I'm just warning you, I'm going to cough. So I tell them what I'm going to do because most providers don't say this. So that way I cough. So I'm focusing on all my throat muscles and coughing and not getting COVID from, you know, like spreading it to anyone. Anyway, you don't even feel the needle go in practically, right? So your thing of bending over this way, that works as well. Remember, the more loose your muscles are, theoretically, the fewer muscle fibers that needle is going through, the fewer muscle fibers is going through, the less tissue trauma. The less tissue trauma, the less pain. 
So that's the idea why having less tense muscles is helpful. But just distract yourself. Now, distraction is not a good long-term coping mechanism. Definitely not. But for things that are episodic, like before surgery, you're not getting IV needles every you know week, every month, hopefully. In those cases, I absolutely embrace distraction because we're not talking about like dealing with a trauma that you're going to have to deal with for you know the rest of your life. No, the distraction is not a good way. In cases like this, a hundred percent embrace it. <laughs> um, anyways, cough number one. The other part of what you're saying, which is the deeper question, how do you prepare for something as traumatic as surgery? Unfortunately, there is no playbook because every individual is different and it's not a compound. It's that the experiences, the medical history that you bring in to the operating room is fundamentally different. You know, if you've never had surgery before, you're not gonna have PTSD from an operating room. If you had a child die from surgery before, you're having a whole different set of traumas bringing in. If you had surgery before and the chronic pain is, you know, is destroyed your life, you have a whole different set of traumas. If you're overweight, if you have heart failure, if you have asthma, whatever it is, there is no one size fits all plan. However, there are three general um, pillars to preparation. And those are the mindset, the physical conditioning and the nutrition leading up to surgery. Those three are shared for anyone who comes in for surgery. And unfortunately, none of my patients know this, and I really mean none. Uh, and certainly nobody optimizes all three of them. It's not anyone's fault. It's no one, I'm not attributing any blame, except the system does not foster this type of preparation. Uh, we're starting to in some places. Kaiser Permanente here in California is trying to do it because they're a payer and an insurer. So they want to cut costs and they know at this, and we, we began the, the session today talking about how you can actually save money and save lives, which, you know, everyone's in the same boat there. Kaiser does a little bit of this. My wife had surgery recently, so I kind of went through all of their pre-surgery materials, and I'm like, oh, they're like 15% there, and that's cool, more than anyone else. So I'm happy to talk about some of the components of those three pillars that are broadly applicable, but it doesn't always depend on the individual. Hmm. No, I mean, those, don't you think, Jim, those, those three things, you know, we're really, I mean, three of the things that we always talk about all the time, which it would go into play with, you know, that, that whole prep. Oh, absolutely. And I just want to um, reiterate that was mindset, nutrition, and fitness. So I'm just yeah, trying physical to write... conditioning or fitness. Exactly. And, um, and you can go by different words, right? My body can be interchangeable with mindset. You know, mental health can be interchangeable with mindset. That's one, right? The nutrition is your diet. If there's any supplements you're taking, et cetera, that, you know, that's the broad category. Then the physical fitness is like your conditioning. It's not necessarily just like your VO2 max with like a Fitbit or whatever. It, it, it can be much more simple than that. But ultimately, how well can your heart tolerate the stresses of anesthesia and surgery? Three right. broad categories. I do have a recommend, recommendation for you, Doc, if you don't mind me ask, um, commenting. Do not, under any circumstances, give uh, your telephone number to Carol Sue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously, we don't want, I don't want my sister to undergo uh, surgery. Um, but well, you guys, crossed. fingers crossed. I mean, the yeah. MRI to that first. So that's another old creepy thing, but whatever. I do have a question though, um, because I'm just, I'm really curious about this. You had mentioned um, going under, you know, such a mysterious uh, branch of medicine that when the patient wakes up, they have no memory. Have there been uh, studies or any patients that you've worked with that have had some type of memory of what transpired? Oh, wow. So this, now we're going into some of the really juicy parts of anesthesia. To answer your question, yes. I had a patient uh, last year. It was intentional. I purposely did not put them very deep because they had a history of certain anesthesia complications. We had a conversation beforehand. Um, it did not lead to any traumatic event at all. They had some recall, which was not unexpected at all. But what you're referring to digs into something much deeper than just some of these you know, anecdotal experiences, because Unfortunately, uh, well, I should say, fortunately, anesthesia awareness is quite rare. It's on the order of one in a thousand. 
just um, so people know, we have awareness when your dosage of anesthesia is insufficient for your anesthesia requirements. So like your brain needs this much, you're getting this much, that delta, that gap leads to your brain still being a little bit awake. The problem is that even if your brain is a little bit awake, it cannot necessarily form memories coherently. And this leads to trauma that unfortunately patients may not be able to even remember, wow. which is problematic. If you're trying to diagnose somebody with new depression after surgery, new hyperarousal after surgery, new anxiety after surgery, new symptoms of PTSD after surgery, you go into like, well, what happened to you in the last couple of weeks, months? Some patients very, very rarely will say, you know, I just, I heard voices. I heard people in the OR laughing, joking. I felt the instruments on me. I saw something. Those <laughs> cases are, indel are, are terrible. They are pretty rare, like I said. And yeah, at least you can circle back to then address that trauma. And we can talk about how you prevent that from happening in the future. There's all sorts of techniques we have. But the one that's less, or the one that's probably far more common, but we can't diagnose it nearly as easily, is when patients don't know what happened. It usually takes about two weeks for the memories to begin to consolidate enough to even put one and one together that, oh my gosh, the voices were me in, in when I was supposed to be under anesthesia. But right. there's, like I said, a dose discrepancy for many different reasons we can talk about why that happens. So for one, you have a delayed diet. I mean, patients don't even know what's hit them because you just had a shock and off and surgery, right? And then number two, patients aren't, I mean, do you want to go up to your doctor and be like, doc, I think I felt my surgery. You know, I don't quite know what happened, but I have this feeling that something weird happened to me. Patients are afraid to bring this up with their doctors. Doctors don't know how to interpret this because what I'm sharing is not widely taught medical school and it's certainly underdiagnosed and we just don't know enough about it. But it's almost like how many patients have had some weird thing happen to them under anesthesia, but their brains haven't even, and not, it's not their fault, right? It's because your brain isn't fully online. It can't put all these memories together when it's scrambled under anesthesia, even if it's only partially scrambled. How do you, you know, determine, like, because you're talking about the different levels of, uh, that somebody goes over, is it based on weight? Uh, is it based on time that they are, you're thinking that the surgery is going to last? What, what determines, because you're talking levels, so I'm assuming not everyone's, you know, everyone's different. How, another fascinating question. We think that anesthesia, I mean, I should say patients think anesthesia is just like a light switch on and off. Absolutely not. There's different depths of anesthesia. In fact, in the first stage of anesthesia, you're kind of what we call hyper excitable. You are uh, <laughs> moving around a lot and it's dangerous for the surgery. So we actually need to quickly descend past that. We call that stage two doesn't matter the name, but that's not a safe place to be because many complications can happen in the body when the brain is kind of halfway off. Um, almost think of like an agitated drunk. Uh, alcohol can be anesthetic. It would kill you at the doses needed for general anesthesia, but it does have, it acts on the same receptors as many of our anesthetic agents. So imagine a very angry drunk, but even more volume cranked up. We need to descend below that to have the body be completely calm. And then presumably we, we put a little bit more in as a safety buffer to prevent memories from being consolidated. The problem is that weight, which is our first and foremost um, in, uh, use, um, uh, sorry, metric for dosing and age only can take you so far. Because once again, every patient is different. What patients bring into the operating room also determines what their requirements are. Those include funny things like red hair. Maybe you've heard of redheads needing more anesthesia. There is some truth to that. Very, very common question, by the way, on social media. Very common question. Um, the bigger one, uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I don't know if you've heard of it, or I'm sure your viewers. Some another condition where we believe there might be some increased anesthesia requirements. But putting those aside, high anxiety does increase some anesthesia requirements. Alcohol use certainly increases anesthesia requirements. Other drug use. What we're seeing a lot of in California is marijuana use. Absolutely higher requirements, far more than would be predicted for your age and body weight alone. Wow. So 
all of these things that we put in our bodies, drugs, or probably even foods that we haven't yet figured out, influence how much you need to actually be amnestic or to be fully knocked out. Now, patients are often unwilling to tell us, and you know, they're afraid of social stigmas, et cetera. They won't tell us how much weed they actually use or how much meth they use or cocaine or whatever, but all these drugs, anything that affects your brain kind of exposes itself under anesthesia when that book opens up. One way it exposes itself is in the anesthesia requirements. Wow. Wow, that is so fascinating to me because, you know, you had mentioned, um, <laughs> I picked up on this one, hyper excitable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, with good reason. And, and, you know, as a sidebar to that, I, when they say, when they start, have started the IV on me, I'm just like, you know, I get a little tense. So, you know, I try to remember, okay, focus on my breathing, you know, focus on a pleasant memory, you know, something like that. Um, Maybe you can cough now, right? Focus on that cough, those throat muscles, yeah. engaging them. This is suggestion. Yeah. Exactly. Sure. And I, I can hear, uh, uh, again, we don't want her to undergo anything, but I can hear her directing the conversation in the operating oh. room. All right, everybody cough now. <laughs> but um you know the good thing i can say is i yeah i you know do not use marijuana i did in my younger years and i would get paranoid and then i would go eat so that is why i at least i can say my my mind is not subject to that stuff so that should help me <laughs> good very good so the what we were just chatting about, about um, the question I asked, and you had, meant, you had mentioned that it's quite rare, one in a thousand. Um, is that something that they, that the medical association or whatever, like, does somebody keep track of that? I'm just like really curious about this because I would think that as these cases do come up, they're obviously so unique and, and diverse that you know, the medical community, I would think in turn can learn so much from that. Great question. So there's, there's a little bit more to the story than I shared because uh, I mean, <laughs> there's the other part of the discrepancy between dosing and requirements is if your body cannot tolerate the anesthesia. So if your heart can't tolerate the anesthesia, you're at high risk of being underdosed. So this specifically comes up in some predictable patient populations to the point of your question there. One is obstetrics, so emergency C-sections. Two is trauma surgery, and three is open heart surgery. All three of these patients have hearts that cannot tolerate an otherwise full dose of anesthesia. So that is now lowering the amount of anesthesia you can give. So even if you have the, you know, I wanna say cleanest brain, whatever, the brain with the lowest anesthesia requirements, if your heart can't tolerate enough, because you're bleeding out from a car accident or a gunshot wound or a stabbing, or you're a mother on the operating room table who's lost a liter and a half of blood from hemorrhaging from a, you know, any number of placental abruption, et cetera, et cetera, your body can't tolerate the anesthesia. These three populations are at highest risk. So that one in a thousand number is an average, but we do know who's more likely to experience it. It's the people with the higher anesthesia requirements, like we said, chronic alcoholics, cocaine abusers, et cetera, and people whose bodies can't tolerate. And that's gonna be obstetrics, emergency surgery, and open heart surgery, just because those patients who are having open heart surgery already have the weakest hearts uh, in the world, hence why they're getting open heart surgery. Yeah, fascinating. It, it really is. And, you know, I wonder, you know, from those three experiences, um, what that ultimately, does for the patient themselves for for instance um you know you'd mention alcohol like say somebody is maybe in a car accident and it was alcohol related and their their level of alcohol is is so high and uh, you know you've heard maybe have heard sometimes that oh you know i didn't feel or they didn't feel a thing type of thing um so you know that's frightening for for different patients i you know getting to the root cause um well the root cause uh, i i don't know like i th just think that there's so many unanswered uh 
questions with with that and i just i find it fascinating um yeah i I need to share something else on that topic just because uh because you mentioned alcohol in particular acute alcohol use actually lowers anesthesia requirements so if you come in completely drunk you actually don't need as much because like we said you're already halfway there so in those cases when patients quote don't feel anything it's because they're already if their blood alcohol levels are high enough partly um partly already anesthetized about this whole topic that we haven't talked about is that what happens when someone does have awareness? We talked about those possible complications of mostly related to mental health, which then eventually manifest in the body as physical ailments, but like the PTSDs, hyperarousals, chronic fear, feeling isolated, et cetera. What's really important for us to remember is that there's still, there's still things we can do to help minimize those risks. So I mentioned earlier, last year I had a patient who I purposely underdosed their anesthesia, very, very intentionally, but they didn't wake up with trauma because of some very particular things that I did. It turns out, and this is not surprising to people like yourselves, because this is very intuitive. Unfortunately, the intuition matches the data here. Patients are more likely to experience a traumatic event and then consolidate that memory as a PTSD type memory to live with PTSD after, because many of us have traumatic events who don't have PTSD after. We've all experienced people dying in accidents, et cetera, et cetera. Most patients and people will not classify that as a PTSD event. They'll live their lives without hyperarousal, chronic fear, and the physical complications from it. Why do some patients have different brain processing of that event? So it turns out that at least in the operating room, which is likely going to be extrapolatable outside, the more patients are afraid for their life, fearing that something is going wrong, they are likely to, and once again, it's kind of like common sense, more likely to develop PTSD from that intraoperative awareness. Mm. Among a couple other factors, but most of it boils down to the more fearful you are, yes, if you have pre-existing PTSD, pre-existing anxiety, depression, et cetera, these increase the risk as well. In my role, what can I effect. I can't go back and change 15 years of a patient's traumas before surgery. It's infeasible to do that, but I can remind the patient that they are loved, cared for, guided. You know, that's why we called the night before. It's why we want to build that therapeutic relationship so that if something happens and they hear something, the hearing parts of the brain are most resistant to anesthesia. So if you remember something, it's usually something that you're going to hear. Like the common thing is patients that have wisdom teeth removal and they say they were awake for it. They'll usually hear drilling. They usually don't feel pain because we give so much pain medication. They might hear weird things. So I want them to hear that. So that here, the most important person to me in the world at that time. And you tell me, how do you think that you would, if you were a little bit, a little bit awake and you're hearing that type of, voice instead of people freaking out or making jokes about you or whatever it might be, who's more likely to develop this PTSD from this? It's why we place headphones on patients' ears that repeat positive affirmations or quite frankly, whatever mm-hmm. they want, whether it be music, like you said earlier, something that's peaceful and calming and relaxing to them. Mm-hmm. So that if something is a little bit online in their scrambled brain, they're hearing something relaxing, something that is not going to have them fear for their life afraid of dying on the table. Oh, yeah. You're less likely to consolidate that partial memory in this inexplicable PTSD pattern from right. awareness. Yeah, so just fascinating how, you know, what, what the brain absorbs, what it hears. And, you know, they often say, you know, uh, especially when a person is really in their last hours of death, uh, for the most part, their hearing is the last to go. So that would make common sense, you know, we, the same thing when you're under anesthetic, that you, your, your hearing is still there, uh, even though you're in, a, in such a, a state where your, your mind not, may not be absorbing everything, but you're hearing. So that, I think that's fascinating. It actually so makes it very difficult. The dynamics of the, the OR, like, hey, how you doing down there? Like, you know, you're wondering, can you hear me? <laughs> I'm going to be imagining that now. Hmm. Yeah. So this yeah. is actually another very common question. You know, 
we do listen to music in the operating room during surgeries. Um, and there are conversations that happen. It's not, there's nothing wrong about this because right. if you're trying to like just focus nonstop on something for two hours, it becomes very fatiguing. And I think that for many people, you're going to have worse outcomes because you just get mentally exhausted. There's something to be said about the balance. And it's really an elegant balance of safety and the best possible outcome for the patient. And how do you bring in some level of fun and enjoyment so that you reach a state of flow? If right. you want to talk about, I'm sure you guys have talked about flow before. Flow is not just staring at you know an appendix for 45 minutes and trying to dissect it out and rip it out. No, it's about doing that in a non-fatiguing manner so you still have juice for the next patient of the day. I have a question. Oh, here she goes. You would mention that obviously you have conversations and that's, you know, I would think that obviously that you would, that you're not like, as you said, just so focused on that appendix. Um, what, and obviously you don't have to go into great detail. What do you think is maybe the wildest conversation you've ever heard <laughs> or been a part of in the operating room? I'm going to have to, uh, to uh, plead. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be dishonest if I told you. <laughs> All right, let no, me I, let me ask the question this way. And again, you don't have to answer this. Has politics ever been discussed in the operating room? Ooh, politics has been. And any wise anesthesiologist will tell you that the best course of action is to steer clear because I would think yeah. absolutely yeah religion politics and money are three things that we should should not be brought up in a professional uh, environment because you don't want heated arguments or discussions right right on the table then this isn't this isn't flow or fun or entertainment this is this is now becoming a patient you know I'm sure nothing bad would happen but I would not roll the dice even if it was a one in ten thousand one hundred thousand chance why would one engage Fortunately, right. in my experience, I'm very lucky to be working in the Bay Area where people are not, um, my the surgeons that I work with are not typically aggressive. I think in most centers, it's not a real, real concern. Yeah, no, I wouldn't, you know. Yeah. I, I'm just wondering, like, the, 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 I'm sure there's some like juicy stories, like something like, you know, just fun and juicy and. <laughs> you can't uh, talk well, about it. I know, I'll no, tell no, you no, that, that I'm not it. Too, but I, I would think that they would want to, you know, just be, you know, so relaxed and in tune and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, working together that year, you just, you, you talk about things that are relatable and fun and, or relaxing or, you know, that are not controversial, um, that, you know, all, and, and just humor, for me, humor cures all, so, mm -hmm. you know. Ah, humor is one of the most, another very powerful secret of medicine. Uh, very, very powerful. If you look at, oh my gosh, one minute story here, just because humor is so powerful. Maybe we talked, did we talk about Norman Cousins last time? Maybe we did. I think we, maybe but, we did. Ankylosing spondylitis. I don't, I don't, I don't recall. No. Debilitating autoimmune disease where your spine literally fuses from just nonstop bone growth and fight and scar tissue that just forms around your spine before we had modern medications that could help prevent and treat this. Patients just had to literally take ibuprofen all day, every day, suffer the consequences of that and live in a lot of pain. Norman Cousins, <clears throat> you can look up the story, I think it was the late 60s, was hospitalized for one of these, you know, terribly painful episodes where their ankylosing spondylitis. And it was just so sick of the hospital not helping them feel better. Checked himself out, went to the hotel next door and just watched comedy on whatever, I don't think they had VCRs back, whatever they had on TV, just lacked it off and felt so much better. Went on to talk about the experience. But anyways, yeah, humor is an incredibly underutilized and safe part of medicine. That story is just one of the hilarious stories that people don't really unfortunately share because we have so many medications that work today but we forget about the other alternative and very, very safe methods. Absolutely. Humor, humor cures all, I believe. What do you think, Jim? Oh, oh my gosh, yes. Uh, you know, I've often said, like, if I'm having uh, maybe um, a bad day or if I need know that I need to get up and, and kind of lighten the load, you know, I, I go in, um, I'll go in the bathroom, look in the mirror, and I'm like, hey, 
how you doing? And that makes me crack <laughs> up. And I crack up for like, you know, however long, and it's just me. And then I'm like, oh, I feel so much better. So definitely a lot of truth with the humor that goes such a long way. And biochemically, we have some inklings of why that is. And I just had to mention it because we talked about anesthesia in the operating room. The medications that are used that often turn into drugs of abuse, things like opioids or marijuana and the use of cannabis use disorder, they act on receptors that we already have in the body. Endorphins, right. endocannabinoids. But there's so much emphasis on looking for external sources that stimulate these receptors that we forget that our bodies are also capable, as you just said yourself, at stimulating these receptors within our bodies, not only to reduce pain in the case of endogenous, meaning they're already in our bodies, endogenous opioid receptors, that we have endogenous opioid receptor agonists, so we don't make morphine in our body, but we make yeah. weaker forms of it all the time that we can increase stimulation, uh, increase production of. Same yeah. goes likely for endocannabinoids, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> without the side effects of an opioid epidemic, of cannabis use disorder, of et cetera, et cetera. Wow. All right, now I have a question about something about nothing. Okay, here we go. Let's go. <laughs> when you were a child, did you I have, the, did you have that there. game Operation? <laughs> did you enjoy playing that game, Janice? Was, it, was that your go-to as a kid? Were you yeah, that? I love that. That um, I love that game. She, she liked the noise. Which was your favorite uh, piece to to pull out? The bone. The bone <laughs> in the leg. The bone in the leg. Yeah. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I, well, I don't. You know what? I don't know why, but I I think uh, the noise. Like Carol Sue would mention, the noise. You know, like you're so, you know, you mentioned about the, you know, the appendix, like, like you're just so like, so focused on just grabbing it out of there and being successful at it. Like all your tension, you have tunnel vision right then and there. You just want to rip it out without getting zapped. <laughs> to me, that was the easiest piece to get out because it was long. Was That's what I was thinking. That was my personal reason. I love the bone too. <laughs> the easiest one. Easiest one. Well, there you go. Do you have any? Uh, they make that game anymore? We'll have to find out. Yes, they do. Oh, they do. Yes, they mm. do. Um, do you have any something about nothing questions? No, I. You know, I'm writing down my notes because I'm going to have a, a a ton of them when I meet that with that doctor. I've never met him. I've heard good, very good things about him, and so I'm a. Uh, you know, I've got some some other questions, and you know, I may even ask him if I can, you know, meet with the anesthesiologist if that's the route we go uh, before I hands, which is probably an odd request, but I don't care. And uh, Doc, also, we're going to be in California next week. I will make sure that she doesn't have your address. <laughs> that's right. We're flying to San Diego. On that, where is he located? <laughs> Oh my gosh, this has been such an amazing conversation. You know, I, I sometimes think Carol, so especially with having you on doc, um, amazing that, you know, we think we cover all that we need or want to, but yet we discover so much more. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Any parting words, doc? Oh my gosh, well, I, I wanna say the human potential is equally fascinating. The more we learn about what we can do, the more we realize that there's more we can do. And, you know, surgery when needed can be life-saving and powerful. And it's what separates us from medicine from a thousand years ago, but right. it's not always necessary. It really is kind of like the pinnacle, but we have so we have whole foundation of that pyramid that we can address before we get there, obviously. And I, I'm just curious if you guys can, if you would be comfortable sharing an experience where you feel you were able, you know, something that could maybe, I would love to be inspired and enlightened by, I'm sure you've had them, experiences where you tapped into something that you felt you couldn't do before, but you found the strength to do. Wow. Wow. I'm putting thought. I, I, I don't mean to, yeah. but I'm just so curious. I, Carol Sue, you go first because you're older. 
<laughs> My memory isn't as good as yours. You go. Well, the first thing that popped up for me was, um, well, I'm going to be 60 on Tuesday, but at my 50th surprise 50th birthday party, I fell, I immediately knew I tore, um, I had to tear my rotator cuff Two mm -hmm. operations within a year, major hip surgery. And what I remember, and I believe it was from the hip surgery from being under was they had asked me if a representative, cause they, he knew he had to put clips in my hip. So I guess that representative happened to be at, at the hospital and they wanted to be in the operating room with their product that they were gonna put into me. And of course I was like, well, I don't really care. That was something significant that I remember. But what I remember, I think I may have shared it beforehand, um, was my height and sensitivity for chocolate like that must have been on my mind like chocolate 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 like I had that tunnel vision like I had to have dark chocolate and I guess I was making everybody crack up but the other thing that I wanted to share was um obviously from from Ryan's experience you know I was thinking of um you know and I was having a conversation with him last week and he do patients ever recall like he doesn't remember those first two weeks um when he initially had his um his accident and i'm just wondering you know do you do you have patients perhaps that have been through um a traumatic experience and they don't recall anything they only remember it from a certain time frame typically past what the accident date was? That can happen in patients that have insults to the, the central nervous system, AKA the brain, because anesthesia scrambles memories, but uh, physical trauma also can cause amnesia, concussions, et cetera. When you have surgery in somebody who has had an insult to the brain, like a bad concussion or a bleed in the brain, uh, or if there's a tumor, if it's a non-accident type of thing, Mixing anesthesia with already disease in the brain can lead to increased amnesia, increased uh, amnesia thereafter. So all bets are off on predicting. In general, the younger patients are, the more what we call cognitive reserve they have, the more likely they are to have a shortened period of amnesia just because they presumably have more neurons firing, more cylinders um, you know, firing, but it really depends on what the mechanism of the accident was and all that. Gotcha. Okay, thank you. Wow. Well, I would have to say the way well, I had two C-sections. Two C so the first one was he was breached. Um, and I remember vividly my mom coming in, our mom coming in after um, I delivered, after they um, did the operation. And she, I remember her just leaning down. And I, I'm a type of person, I have to sleep with socks on. My feet are always cold. And I vividly remember this and it's always stuck with me because the other parts, I don't remember anything. Why are my feet so cold and where are my socks? And then she says, oh, we're so grateful, so blessed. You gave us a grandson. I go, I don't know what you're talking about. The kid is still inside of me. I have not had any, any surgery. She goes, you, you, you're, you're, I, should, I don't know what you're telling you, but that kid is still inside of me. And I, you know, to this day, I, could, I, I don't know that I could connect the dots as to why I thought that. But it was very odd. And I remember, I remember saying it, but I don't know why I thought that, that no, he was still in me. And she's like, no, you had, he's not with you. He's in the, the bat, you know, the little crib thing. And I'm like, my feet are cold and that kid is still in me. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know, that's me. No, but that's so, that is such an interesting story that just shows the tricks that are mind can play on us in moments of vulnerability and fear. I mean, I'm not saying you were afraid or you were traumatized yeah. and you were stressed, but many women in that situation, especially if it's, you know, breach and or something unexpected had happened, points to that when we're vulnerable, our minds play tricks on us. And we're um, not, I mean, it, it sounds like a scary thing that our minds play tricks, but it also means that we can be suggestible for other outcomes to happen. So there's actually a lot of opportunity in exactly what you just said. 
if you know it's going to happen, which, you know, in the time of surgery, I don't know how um, elective or non-elective your C-section was, but it makes you wonder in women that are having these kind of frightening moments, how much can we harness the brain being a little bit uh, suggestible to help right. promote ideas that'll help them have less pain after delivery, better chance of bonding, better chance of breastfeeding, better chance of protecting against horrible things like postpartum depression or baby blues, which is very real. How right. important are those vulnerable moments in our lives when we have people that care for us, that love us, and that help guide us? Right, and the second one, which this is actually funny and not funny, but funny. The second one was scheduled, um, but I was doing a spinal. And I think I talked about how the anesthesiologist kept missing his mark. And my, you know, leg would just kind of make this like, you know, eh, ow. but anywho, when I uh, got back to the room, they were supposed to leave the catheter in because I had a uh, spinal and they wanted me to, you know, the spinal was for my neck down to lay flat. They didn't want me up. Well, you know, inadvertently they took the catheter out and my husband wasn't in the room. The nurses weren't in the room. I'm like, hmm, yeah, I got the urge to pee here. What the heck is going on? And I knew, I knew I was supposed to lay flat, but damn, I was not peeing in that bed. So I don't know how I did it, but I got myself out of the bed and I crawled to the bathroom. And now I'm in the bathroom and I'm trying to like get the energy which I don't have because I'm still very wobbly. So the nurse comes in, my husband comes in, he's like, you know, like, where is she? And I could hear them yelling some code that there's a missing patient. I could hear them running. And I'm on the other end of the door of the bathroom door. And I'm thinking I'm, I'm punching this door and I'm trying, I'm laughing and crying at the same time. I'm in here, help me. And I'm thinking I'm yelling. I think I'm hitting really hard and I'm not. They finally do find me. They're like, like, how did you get in here? Like, you weren't supposed to get out of bed and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, hey, this girl had to go to the bathroom. I wasn't being in that bed. <laughs> and I only remember bits and pieces of it. I do remember banging on the door. I could not tell you how I got out of bed. I don't remember that whole process. Of how I just remember I could hear them looking for me and screaming. And I was trying to let them know where I was. Other than that, I don't remember anything. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I got some crazy stories. <laughs> and this is why I'm not a good patient. <laughs> One other quick question, nothing about nothing. Have you ever had to put socks on somebody's feet? Oh, uh, um, yeah. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll end by, um, this is not a judgmental statement at all, but um, in medicine, we see a lot of feet, a lot of feet. Hmm. And um, some are definitely, uh, I'm not, not, once again, no, no judgment, please don't get this the wrong way. Some feet are better taken care of than others though. You That's know, true. when you have nails curling around multiple times, it does suggest, you know, something about self-care or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a saying in medicine, I'm not condoning or disproving or refuting or anything. I'm just sharing mm -hmm. uh, a common uh, pearl of medicine, not my judgment, but we say that you can learn a lot about a patient from their feet. So when you're putting the socks on or taking them off for whatever reason, sometimes I need to place an IV in the foot for any number of reasons. Um, I get a good look of the feet and how they look and how they smell and what's going on. Yeah. All right, which leads me to another question. Um, oh so you know that old saying, or maybe this is more of a comment. Um, I forgot who did the skit about it, but you know, you, you always hear your mother say, oh my God, you know, God forbid somebody's in an accident, but were they wearing clean underwear? Yeah. You know, that type of thing. So it's like, okay, be preventative and get your bad care before you go under. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I, I would imagine, you know, you know, with anything, hands, feet, especially the feet yeah. I've seen you know, because some people just, they don't think about taking care of their feet that way, which they should, um, but some people just don't. And uh, mine has nothing to do with that. It's my my feet. I like freeze because the OR is cold. Yeah. And even the, um, you know, once you're in that recovery, I'm, a lot of times they'll put that, um, it's not a blanket, but they'll, they'll, they'll encase my body in this like plastic and pump 
hot air because I like my blood pressure drops and I'm freezing. And then, you know, they put me in this like cocoon thing. It's like a plastic thing. Yeah. Bubble wrap. I call it heated bubble wrap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do that term with my patients. I when I'm plugging them in. I'm going to be like, oh, hey, here's your heated bubble wrap. I'll have to let yeah. you know how it gets. I'm sure they'll love it. So they'll get a kick out of it. That's great. I always ask for it. I'm like, do you have the heated bubble wrap ready? Because I, I freeze. So um, like I said, we're, we're fingers crossed that, you know, maybe it's just therapy. Uh, and that's my focus is what, it, you know, hoping that I won't have surgery. But, you know, if I do, we'll have to have Dr. Covey back on so I can update him on my shenanigans. Oh my gosh, we can't thank you enough for coming on today, especially on your day off. We know how busy you are, dedicated to your profession and you know the follow-up with your patients. Um, we know they are in good hands. Um, any parting words, Kasu? No, I, uh, you know, we, I always get something just from chatting with you and listening to you. And I know our listeners and viewers are doing the same. Uh, obviously, we re reserve the right to uh, make you a repeat offender again and come on and join with us on any new updates and things that are going on in, in your world as well. And, you know, you're, you're adding so much value to people to really go into uh, that, that OR with more mindset, but even a little bit of, of, confidence and control to like ask certain questions um, and to, to make sure that their health or wellness and their mindset is uh, in such a way that they're going to feel more confident in the hands that they're giving their, their own self to. And I absolutely love that. You've had so much value to so many people. Well, as do you both. And that's why I love your show and I love everything that you guys share and the ethos. So I would, uh, I'm so happy we got to connect today and I look forward to you not needing surgery, hopefully, but if you do, if you do, it's absolutely not an issue. And I'm sure you're going to thrive through it. Yeah, for, sure. for sure. And on that note, um, if you feeling that you want to learn more about what Dr. Cave does as an anesthesiologist and what he brings to not only the operating room to his colleagues, but specifically to his patients, go to his TikTok page. His videos are very informative. They're very educational and you will enjoy watching them. On that note, my name is Janice, AKA Wellness Diva 5.0. And I'm with two sisters. And this is Carol, so AKA Naughty Boss live from Vero Beach. A little cloudy going on here, but that's okay. It's warm. We're not freezing our tootsies off like somebody back up north. Uh, everyone have a great, great weekend. Remember sailing into Saturday with kindness, uh, hope, positivity. And uh, this is one of those Zooms that you're going to have to replay because you're going to get a lot of great information from Dr. Kabe. Thank you again so much. And we look forward to having you on again. Everyone have a great weekend. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye.